The People's Constitution, the path to empowerment of Australians in a 21st century democracy by Bronwyn Kelly. Read by Bronwyn Kelly. Chapter 6, Part 12. Assessing the risk of enshrining human rights and obligations in the Constitution. Were Australians to invoke Prospect 2 and access all the rights in human rights treaties, and were governments to observe their obligations under those treaties, Australia would be a much better place to live in than it is. More importantly, we would have a far better chance of addressing existential threats such as climate change and war in ways that do not increase inequality. In the 2020s, there is every reason to reverse the current permission system for human rights and no reason not to. There are no downsides to the reversal, except perhaps for multinational corporations and for the worst sort of politicians who measure the success of their lives in terms of the amount of power they have corralled to themselves and denied to all others. Nevertheless, despite the obvious advantages of a switch to Prospect 2, it is likely to be necessary to convince Australians that full assumption of their rights in our national laws is an option that can be accessed without serious risk for the electors. On this point, I would have to concede that, obviously, nothing in life is risk-free. But assumption of human rights on an equal basis is about as risk-free as it gets. In fact, a people's assumption of rights on an equal basis reduces risks that arise from every human activity. It reduces the risk that human endeavours in progress will adversely impact on one group more than another. As such, it should be relatively straightforward to convince a majority of Australians that full assumption of rights and full imposition of attendant obligations on governments in a single efficient stroke, as per Prospect 2, is in their interests and that any government that refuses to accept these obligations is acting contrary to the public interest. This is evident if we contemplate the fact that the human rights and obligations in the treaties to which we are a party come closer than any other statement in law to describing what the public interest actually is. It is arguable that the primary right of all humans to self-determination, by virtue of which they freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social and cultural development, is a central tenet of the public interest. At least, no argument has been posed by any Australian government against this point. The strategy of successive governments has been simply to avoid the argument entirely and doggedly deny in the domestic forum what they have plainly accepted for over seven decades in international forums, namely, that free people are entitled to self-determination, because without it they are not free, and they are entitled to every benefit that may legitimately flow from that. But even were an Australian government of the 2020s able to mount a rational argument that it is not in the public interest to confer all rights on Australians and impose all attendant obligations on governments, there is still no real risk that would arise for electors and any other beneficiaries of human rights from invoking Prospect 2. On the contrary, risk in this single-stroke approach is entirely in the control of the Australian public. Because the straightforward approach in Prospect 2 is simply that 
all human rights are transferred into the Constitution as the indivisible whole that our governments have insisted they are, the prospect opens out the full array of choices to Australians as their starting menu. From there, Australians can choose to subtract or moderate rights, one at a time, if they so choose, should circumstances arise that force them to conclude that any of these rights may be risky in some crucial way or contrary to their best interests overall. Australians can also choose to add rights if they are deemed to be required in a specified form. The right to abortion on demand may be a case in point here, or perhaps the right to free preschool education. And finally, Australians can choose to let the government off the hook, or not, for any particular obligations, again, one at a time, if they so choose. Alteration of rights on a permanent basis in this process, particularly subtraction of rights and government obligations, would be subject to limits. And these limits are posed by the two main treaties themselves, by which I mean the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. In Article 5, both treaties state that, quote, nothing in the present covenant may be interpreted as implying for any state, group or person any right to engage in any activity or to perform any act aimed at the destruction of any of the rights or freedoms recognised herein or at their limitation to a greater extent than is provided for in the present covenant, unquote. However, this limitation is not designed to protect people from some risk that might arise from a right. It is designed to protect them from the risk of reduction of their universal human rights. For instance, by a government acting in contravention of the covenants without the consent of the people and against their will or interests, or by a group which may amass enough power to reduce rights on an unequal basis or in a manner inconsistent with the general welfare of a democratic society, or by a group which may not wish to observe the same level of responsibility to another group in the free exercise of their rights on an equal basis. Accordingly, this limitation is likely to make referendums for subtraction of rights or reduction of the full extent of a right a very infrequent occurrence. Addition of rights is more likely. This is only to be expected since subtraction of rights that are acknowledged as universal would make a country less democratic and free. And the whole point of the covenants is to ensure that universal rights, once enshrined in national laws, are not then diminished. The limitation is soundly designed to minimise the risk that a political, autocratic or even democratic process can be misused so as to limit rights that would otherwise be available under the treaties consistent with their intention to foster the general welfare of a democratic society. This is the particular type of welfare that all the human rights instruments are designed to promote. They are designed to ensure that the rights of the less powerful within a democratic society are maintained on an equal basis with the more powerful. Because of this protection for the less powerful and the powerless, no net detriment can arise from invoking Prospect 2 that would be larger than, or indeed anywhere near as large as, 
the outright detriment Australians have suffered and will suffer even more if governments continue to deny Australians, especially the least powerful, their universal human rights in domestic law. In the decision process that would pertain under Prospect 2, there is also little or no risk to the public due to the way the rights and obligations have been listed in the treaties themselves. Every human right listed in these originating treaties entails the need for acceptance by signatory states of particular obligations to use the machinery of government to ensure each right is conferred in full. But the form of the obligations as a whole is such as to ensure that no government or sovereign authority will expose itself or its people to risk by virtue of observing an obligation when it is contrary to the interests of a nation to do so, and no individual or group will expose another individual or group to risks in public safety, public order, the protection of public health or morals, or the protection of the rights and freedoms of others. What this means is that rights may only be legitimately exercised when they do not cause these risks. In both of the core treaties on civil and political rights and economic, social and cultural rights, there are clauses that safeguard nations, groups and individuals against such exposures. The most comprehensive safeguard is provided in the first of these covenants, which states in Article 4 that, quote, In time of public emergency, which threatens the life of the nation and the existence of which is officially proclaimed, the state's parties to the present covenant may take measures derogating from their obligations under the present covenant to the extent strictly required by the exigencies of the situation, provided that such measures are not inconsistent with their other obligations under international law and do not involve discrimination solely on the ground of race, colour, sex, language, religion or social origin. Unquote. In general, this means that governments may derogate from the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, or most of it, if there is a national emergency, as long as they do not derogate on an unlawful or discriminatory basis and only to the extent required by the emergency. This is an ample safeguard in national emergencies or security crises, inasmuch as there are only a small number of rights in the covenant where derogation may not be exercised by a government in such circumstances. No derogation by a government is permitted at any time under Article 6 on the right to life, Article 7 on the right not to be subjected to torture or cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment, Article 8, paragraphs 1 and 2 on the right not to be held in slavery or servitude, Article 11, on the right not to be imprisoned merely on the ground of inability to fulfil a contractual obligation. Article 15, on the right not to be held guilty for an offence which was not a crime when the offence was committed or have a penalty imposed beyond that applicable at the time of the offence. Article 16, on the right to recognition everywhere as a person before the law. And Article 18, on the right to freedom of thought, conscience and religion and to manifest one's religion and beliefs. In other words, rights and obligations conferred under these seven articles may not be denied in any circumstance. All the other rights and obligations, however, may be derogated from in a genuine emergency 
which threatens the life of the nation, and as such, nations are protected from putting themselves at risk by being unable to limit human rights, freedoms and obligations when it is clearly necessary. Because of this structure of specified responsibilities and limits in the covenant in relation to both rights and obligations, there is little, if any, risk in simply transferring the whole covenant into the constitution as is. This is an approach that has been considered reasonable and feasible since the covenant first came into force. In 1983, for instance, eminent policy analysts and experts in constitutional law responding to perceived problems in drafting piecemeal legislation to recognise civil and political rights for Australians noted that, quote, one possible way of avoiding at least some of these drafting difficulties is to adopt without alteration one of the existing declarations of rights, such as the UN Covenant on Civil and Political Rights or the European Convention on Human Rights. Although those documents define the rights to be protected in a very heavily qualified form, the outcome of intergovernmental compromise, the documents may at least provide an agreed starting point to which further specific changes could be later made as circumstances warrant, unquote. Accordingly, it is obvious from a legal perspective that there are neither legal barriers nor major national risks that would inherently arise from vesting this or any other human rights instrument in full in Australian law, either in the Constitution or in legislation, particularly bearing in mind that civil and political rights have been defined in a very heavily qualified form that has been acknowledged as a satisfactory intergovernmental compromise. Indeed, risks multiply when we take the opposite approach and start to pick the eyes out of international laws to which we have already agreed in full. Risks multiply when we start to treat civil and political rights as though they are not universal and indivisible. It should be noted, however, that in contrast with the structure of permissible derogations under the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, it is quite a lot harder for governments to lawfully derogate from rights and obligations under the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. Obviously, in relation to this latter covenant and the other main treaties, states' parties found intergovernmental compromise was more easily reached, probably because the rights conferred under these other covenants do not pose the same level of risk, or shall we say challenge, to the power of governments per se. As John von Dusser has noted, quote, The civil and political rights are regarded as first-generation rights. They have the feature that they are negative rights in the sense that the state is required to refrain from certain actions against individuals so that the individual can enjoy a freedom to be left alone to pursue, within acceptable limits, happiness and prosperity, unquote. In short, these civil and political rights could threaten the power of governments in any country, and so they have been curbed by governments wherever they can in the originating treaties. By contrast, though, and again quoting von Dusa, economic, social and cultural rights are often described as positive or distributive rights, since they require an activist response by the state to ensure the provision of the money and services necessary for the realisation and enjoyment of the rights. These rights are often defined as second-generation rights. It will be 
apparent from the nature of these rights that their enjoyment is dependent on the policies and philosophy of the government of the day. In this sense, there is a political element in their enjoyment. Unquote. Because governments have sensed there is a political element that may be quite easily used to disallow our enjoyment of these rights, they have probably assumed that they can ignore them and their obligations to realise those rights in full. Indeed, since the 1970s, when neoliberalism began to take hold, each government of the day in Australia has complacently assumed that there is no legal obligation to ensure economic, social and cultural rights, and that all they need to do to be released from an obligation to ensure their enjoyment is to plead a lack of money. They have assumed this breach of international law will be politically tolerable because the neoliberal myth that Australians can't afford to enjoy their own rights in well-being has been persuasive. In 2009, the myth was quite persuasive for those who drafted a human rights bill as part of a submission to the National Human Rights Consultation, chaired by Father Frank Brennan, who was chair of the Commonwealth Government's National Human Rights Consultation at the time. This draft bill included a get-out clause for governments on economic, social and cultural rights by stating that, quote, it is acknowledged that these economic, social and cultural rights are subject to progressive realisation and that their realisation may be limited by the financial resources available to government. Accordingly, in any proceeding under this Act that raises the application and operation of these human rights, a court must consider all the relevant circumstances of the particular case, including the nature of the benefit or detriment likely to accrue or be suffered by any person concerned and the financial circumstances and estimated amount of expenditure required to be made by a public authority to act in a manner compatible with human rights before determining that the provisions of any law or that the acts or conduct of a public authority are incompatible with the Act. Unquote. In other words, this draft new Human Rights Act proposed that a government could plead lack of funds if it wanted to avoid obligations to ensure economic, social and cultural rights. But in contrast with the assumption here that the financial circumstances of government will lawfully limit their obligation to people, the international covenants conferring these positive rights do not give governments a free pass to be so dismissive. Under Article 4 of the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, the human rights and obligations conferred thereby, quote, may be subject to such limitations as are determined by law only in so far as this may be compatible with the nature of these rights and solely for the purpose of promoting the general welfare in a democratic society, unquote. There is nothing in the covenant that says lack of finance can be used as an excuse to withhold economic, social and cultural rights. And while in Article 2 the covenant does state that, quote, each state party to the present covenant undertakes to take steps individually and through international assistance and cooperation, especially economic and technical, to the maximum of its available resources with a view to achieving progressively the full realisation of the rights recognised in the present covenant by all appropriate means, including particularly the adoption of legislative measures, unquote. This does not create a basis on which governments, especially 
monetary sovereign governments like Australia that can create their own currency without limit may plead limited financial resources as an excuse for denying economic, social and cultural rights. And should they attempt to plead as such, it is likely that they would be easily defeated by arguments that any risk to national finances is more likely to arise from not observing all obligations to provide health, education and welfare for all. Overall, the wording of the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights does not supply a get-out for governments on financial grounds. Limitations by democratic governments on economic, social and cultural rights would only be lawful, at least under international law, if it could be lawfully argued that the rights did not promote their general welfare. Bearing in mind that these economic, social and cultural rights have been enshrined in this covenant precisely because they will promote the general welfare, it would be exceedingly difficult for a government to argue that they do not, and just as difficult to argue that limitation of them will promote the general welfare. For instance, quite contorted reasoning would be required to argue that limitation of the right to primary schooling would promote the general welfare. In theory, therefore, a nation could lawfully derogate under this treaty from all economic, social and cultural rights and obligations, but only to a certain extent. And that extent is likely to be near zero for a nation like Australia that is not short of wealth. In this sense, the covenant works to protect people from the risk of losing their economic, social and cultural rights when there is no need and where it would be contrary to their interests. It maximises their chances of realising the full benefit of the treaty. And in Australia, that can be done without risk to monetary sovereignty and national financial sustainability. Australia is simply too wealthy to even need a get-out clause. And should it choose in some folly to argue before a court that a financial limitation prevented it from realising an economic, social or cultural right, it is doubtful of success because its choices for management of finances are simply too wide to be convincingly portrayed as a reasonable justification for withholding the right. Of course, in contemplating the pressure that may be placed on them to realise rights to health, food, education, welfare, housing and all other economic, social and cultural rights, some governments may argue that enshrinement of these rights in the Constitution will open the floodgates to litigation. But it will only open those floodgates if governments are so incompetent as to refuse to promote the general welfare in a democratic society consistent with the covenant, and so at odds with their people as to refuse to demonstrate they have comprehensive plans in place for achieving the full realisation of the rights recognised in the covenant by all appropriate means, including particularly the adoption of legislative measures. All that each government will need to do to construct a defence against litigation is to adopt long-term financial plans, which show how and by when that full realisation can be achieved and that their genuine intent is to achieve it, consistent with the covenant. Again, this is not something that is limited by lack of funds. It is simply limited by human incapacity or governmental incompetence and by a lack of will in some politicians to promote equality and well-being for all. Any decent government could reasonably defend itself and prevent litigation simply by developing reasonable agreements with its peoples, 
which demonstrate how it intends to overcome this incapacity progressively to achieve the goals to which most developed nations, including Australia, have long since committed themselves. These goals are the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. They contemplate a world that by 2030 will be free from hunger, poverty and homelessness, and well organised enough to provide good health, education, gender equality, clean water and energy, decent work, environmental sustainability, biodiversity protection, responsible consumption and production, climate action, peace, justice, strong institutions and reduced inequality. Processes to assist governments in this regard are discussed in Chapter 7. If there are any other foreseeable risks that may arise from enshrining human rights in Australia's constitution via the process suggested in Prospect 2, these will doubtless be raised by interested parties. In consultation processes conducted for enactment of human rights legislation in Australia, it is not evident that there are serious risks beyond those I have considered above, except perhaps the risk that rights which have not yet been specifically extended under the international instruments, such as the right to abortion or euthanasia on demand, might be considered inaccessible if Australian governments refuse to become a party to a treaty by a definitive signature or refuse to otherwise support a particular human rights instrument in international agreement-making processes. This is a reasonable risk, because Prospect 2 assumes that the process for including human rights in the Constitution begins with a government's consenting to become a signatory to, or supporter of, the relevant originating convention, treaty, declaration, protocol, or other instrument of international human rights law. This should not be an issue in relation to human rights treaties and declarations to which Australia is already a party at the time they might be first enshrined in our constitution, but depending on how the process of Prospect 2 is elaborated in the constitution, it might be an issue for rights that may be required in the future if, say, a government chooses to refuse to supply a definitive signature as a state party to the relevant human rights treaty or declaration. This risk, however, can be minimised by specifying in the Constitution that it is the people's intention that the process described in Prospect 2 will not limit their access to rights and will not prevent enactment of legislation granting rights which are not yet contemplated in international law or are bound up in treaties to which the Australian Government has refused to become a signatory. That sort of specification would be consistent with Article 5 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the intention of which is clearly to stop governments from destroying, limiting or denying access to human rights. In other words, it should be clear that the treaties enshrined in the Constitution describe the minimum rights. They do not limit rights and do not prevent Australians from seeking to enshrine rights which have not yet found their way into an international human rights instrument or rights in conventions to which Australian governments might refuse to become a signatory. In that regard, the wording of the Constitution should ensure that a definitive signature by Australia on an international human rights instrument is not the sole trigger for enshrinement of a right in the Constitution. Commonwealth and state legislation may also trigger a referendum to enshrine a new right, 
and there should be no barriers to referendum processes for inclusion of additional rights if community engagement suggests there is legitimate demand. If there is evidence that it is the people's sovereign will to acquire a new right, they should not be barred from that by a parliament or executive government. In summary, given the safeguards inherent in the structure of rights and obligations in the treaties, and given other measures that can be taken to eliminate risk, it is apparent that the risk of not giving the people of Australia the first and last word on their rights is far greater than the risk of giving them every single one of these rights in full, and more, if they wish. That being so, all arguments for more delays in enshrinement of human rights treaties in Australia's constitution are null. They are just so much subterfuge for the purpose of continuing to deny people the power to freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social and cultural development. These are, after all, powers that successive Australian governments have acknowledged in international instruments and in official domestic policy to be the rightful entitlement of all peoples in other nations. Why then should they continue to deny them to Australians? Appendix 3 contains, in summary form, a list of 305 of the rights conferred by the seven main human rights treaties to which Australia is a signatory, and 351 of the obligations imposed on governments by the treaties. The list also includes another 52 rights and 41 obligations in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. The lists do not cover all the rights and obligations in those instruments, but perusal of the lists will allow readers to assess for themselves the risk of enshrining the rights and obligations in the Constitution. They can use the lists to ask themselves if they want these rights on an equal basis with all other Australians. More importantly, readers can use the lists to ask themselves what life will be like without some or all of these rights. Although Australian governments have not specifically enshrined these rights in Commonwealth law, it is obvious that, as a democratic society, we have organised the nation's governance systems in a manner that has allowed most Australians to enjoy most of the benefits intended under the treaties, at least to some extent. But not all Australians enjoy these benefits equally, and no Australian can take it for granted that everyone will be able to enjoy these benefits in the future. Until the 21st century, it was probably a reasonably safe proposition for Australians to take these rights, freedoms and protections for granted, even though they weren't enshrined in domestic law. But that sort of complacency is not a safe strategy for 21st century Australians, especially with the rise of political movements that are anything but democratic. For example, far-right political parties and extremist, politically organised, religious groups which absolutely reject power-sharing arrangements that distribute human rights equally or at all. Other examples of rising political movements that are anything but democratic include 1. Autocratic governments that purport to be democratic but make laws that establish a secret state geared towards denial of civil and political rights. 2. Aggressive forms of international relations which rely on and encourage military escalation and new types of colonialism that deny the rights of Indigenous peoples. And 3. 
international economic and banking institutions that impose austerity on vulnerable nations in exchange for loans and also shift finance to multinational corporations that exploit non-renewable natural resources contrary to the interests of both the environment and humankind. It will be difficult enough in the 21st century for any nation to escape the effects of this worldwide shift of power to cruel, exploitative, political and corporate regimes. But unless people in democratic nations like Australia do whatever they can to assume and assert their rights in law in full so that they cannot be arbitrarily or unlawfully extinguished, there is probably no hope at all of organising power so that it can counterbalance the destructive impulses of these ultimately anti-human political movements. In particular, if we wish to mitigate climate change, assertion of the full array of human rights is essential. Technical solutions alone will be ineffective against climate change. To be successful at all, they must be underpinned by a human-centric political order where nations determine what is and isn't in the public interest. A human rights charter in the Constitution can give Australians this capacity. Without it, well, I will leave that to readers to imagine for themselves. They will not have to look too far, because in Australia, the consequences of deprivation of rights are already apparent. It is clear in news items every month that abuses of human rights by Australia and in Australia have reached the depths of inhumanity. Australia clearly breaches some of the most basic rights, such as freedom from torture, for instance in the extreme brutality that has occurred in the Australian prison system, and some of the most important protections from exposure to war, for instance in the illegal and as yet unatoned-for propaganda that was peddled by Australian governments to justify Australia's participation in the Iraq War. Our systems of government also provide the basis for crimes against future generations, and they provide the basis for perpetuation of the three main destructive mindsets for war, disproportionate fear of terrorism, and theft of Indigenous property that I have already discussed. Mindsets which can predispose governments to commit crimes against humanity on a massive scale. Indeed, it could be said that Australia's mindset about Indigenous property rights has already caused it to attempt a crime against humanity, Indigenous genocide. Despite the grip of these destructive mindsets, it is still possible to convert these governance systems so that they work to provide positive benefits rather than abuse. But it will only be possible to achieve this if Australians act quickly to secure their rights before even more are extinguished. Australian governments have displayed a distinct and persistent tendency to remove rights from Australians, and in the light of this evidence, we should not take it for granted that they will not attempt again to remove more rights, particularly civil and political rights, such as the right to vote. Some Conservative politicians have attempted to introduce voter ID laws, which had they been successful, would have had the effect of disenfranchising some Australians, particularly the most vulnerable, such as homeless people and Aboriginal Australians who live in remote areas. There have also been occasional attempts to abolish compulsory voting and the preferential voting systems in Australia, which would have had the effect of making the Australian voting system much less 
universal and equal than it currently is. Voting rights are tenuous in Australia because there is no constitutional confirmation of most civil and political rights and governments cannot be trusted not to manipulate the voting system for political purposes. But voting rights are not the only civil and political rights at risk. Appendix 4 provides an indication that out of approximately 62 rights listed in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, only nine are likely to be available to natural persons in Australia with some reliability because they have some legislative basis underpinned by the Constitution. Approximately 53 are not likely to be reliably available to natural persons in Australia because they are not fully provided for in the Australian Constitution. And approximately 36 are quite likely to be at risk in their availability to natural persons based on evidence of abuse of these rights by Australian authorities, reservations held in regard to those rights by the Australian Government, or legislative action by the Parliament, which has had the effect of reducing these rights. Some of these rights at risk include 1. The right of any state or group or person not to have a right or freedom, that is recognised in the Covenant, destroyed by any state, group or person, or limited to a greater extent than is provided for in the Covenant. 2. The right not to be subjected to torture or cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or medical or scientific experimentation. 3. The right of accused persons to be segregated from convicted persons. 4. The right of accused and convicted juvenile persons to be separated from adults in the detention system. 5. The right to speedy justice for juveniles. 6. The right to freedom of movement. 7. The right to leave a country. 8. The right of citizens to enter their own country. 9. The right of presumption of innocence until proved guilty. 10. The right to be fully informed and promptly of the detail of charges. 11. The right to adequate time to prepare a defence and communicate with counsel of choice. 12. The right to be tried without undue delay. 13. The right of defendants to be present at their trial and to defend themselves or through their chosen counsel. 14. The right to legal aid and interpreter services. 15. The right to examine witnesses. 16. The right to compensation for wrongful conviction. 17. The right to privacy. 18. The right to reputation and to protection from attacks on privacy and reputation. 19. The right to hold opinions without interference. 20. The right to freedom of expression. 21. The right to seek, receive and impart information and ideas of all kinds. 22. The implied right to peace. 23. The right to protection from and prevention of racial hatred, hostility and violence. 24. The right to peaceful assembly. 25. The right to freedom of association with others. 26. The right of every child to protection of the state. 27. The right of every citizen to take part in the conduct of public affairs directly or through freely chosen representatives. 28. The right of every citizen to vote and be elected in elections of universal and equal suffrage and with secret ballot. 29. The right of every citizen to access, on general terms of equality, to public service. 30. The right to be equal before the law. 31. The right to equal protection of the law. And 32. 
the right of minorities to use their own language. All these rights are at risk. As I have already said, Australians may wish to imagine for themselves what life would be like if the above listed rights were removed in full. Conversely, they may imagine the better life that would be available were these rights to be made available in full to everyone, along with the benefits that can arise from economic, social and cultural rights. There is a vast difference between the two types of Australian state that may be imagined. A nation with these rights is a truly liberal democracy. A nation without them risks becoming a hell of insecurity, where there are no reliable defences against a merciless autocratic state. If Prospect 2 were to be invoked, a range of crucial political rights that are at risk would be secured. Enshrinement of the full International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights into Australia's constitution would secure the right to vote for all Australians and ensure that the voting system itself is one where elections are based on universal and equal suffrage with secret ballot. These and all the other benefits of international human rights instruments can be efficiently accessed if Australians enter into an agreement with each other on human rights and obligations, but only if they formulate that agreement themselves in their constitution as the expression of their sovereign will. In the following section, I will elaborate on two of the most significant benefits that could be secured by free entry into such an agreement by the means described in Prospect 2. This prospect gives Australians, one, a feasible means of exercising rights of self-determination, both as a collective and as individuals, and two, a feasible means of achieving a peaceful coexistence of sovereignties. These two benefits are closely related in that it is unlikely either one can be realised without the other. Both are essential to establishment of a sound governance system suitable for a fully democratic modern state, one that is capable of supporting all its different peoples, cultures and individuals to live in peace without sacrificing their essential cultures, diversity and political agency.